0: The Soundtrack Show will begin in five, four, three. While Ray Parker Jr.'s single for Ghostbusters was a huge radio and MTV hit, legendary film composer Elmer Bernstein is the one who provided the emotional context for the film. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and welcome to our first episode all about the music that is both the song score and the film score to Ghostbusters, a movie from 1984 from Columbia Pictures, directed by Ivan Reitman, with a film score by Elmer Bernstein. As you may have guessed from the opening, I'm opting to focus this particular episode on the film's orchestral score, and I'll save our deep dive into the song score for another episode. Because we may or may not remember that Ghostbusters has a lot of music in it, and I don't just mean the songs. Ghostbusters, like Back to the Future, which came out the following year in 1985, is a hybrid orchestral and song score. The orchestral score was, believe it or not, over 70 minutes of material. That's a lot of music for a movie with a runtime of only 105 minutes and a soundtrack release that's almost all pop music. I mentioned Back to the Future. There are some other similarities between Ghostbusters and Back to the Future. Both feature a number one single from the movie that dominated both MTV and the radio waves. Both feature main orchestral themes. And both got a soundtrack release, as I mentioned, that featured far more pop music than orchestral music. Yet I would argue that there are more differences than similarities. We'll discuss these differences as we go, as I think you'll find them very interesting. The first one to note is that while Back to the Future was scored by a relative newcomer, at the time, Alan Silvestri, Elmer Bernstein was a seasoned, award-winning composer by the time he got to Ghostbusters, which was relatively late in his career. This is where we're going to begin our look at Ghostbusters. Because, in my opinion, the pop music in Ghostbusters, much of which I think is brilliant, and certainly holds a very sentimental place in my memory of this movie as a kid, I was obsessed with this movie as a kid, The pop music and the hype it generated, which is exactly what it was meant to do, by the way, totally overshadowed a brilliant film score by Bernstein. My hope is that today, we're going to shed a little light on this score. Elmer Bernstein was born on April 4th, 1922. He always had broad interests in the arts. He even performed Shakespeare on Broadway when he was young. But his interest in music eventually won him over, and as a child, he received encouragement from no less than composer Aaron Copland to go on and take his studies seriously. Copland even handpicked one of Bernstein's music teachers for him. It's worth noting, by the way, that Elmer Bernstein is not related to the famous conductor and composer Leonard Bernstein of West Side Story fame. Their names are spelled identically, but they pronounce them differently. Bernstein went on to compose some incredible film scores, such as The Great Escape, The Magnificent Seven, a Western which is actually a remake of The Seven Samurai by Kurosawa. The Ten Commandments. True Grit. The Man with the Golden Arm, starring Frank Sinatra, a groundbreaking jazz score, by the way. And, of course, To Kill a Mockingbird. All of these film scores happened before Ghostbusters was even an idea floating around in Dan Aykroyd's head. Indeed, Elmer Bernstein, just as you heard, is a monstrously important figure in film scoring. Each one of those movies are worthy of coverage themselves on the soundtrack show, and I hope we get to all of them eventually. But in the late 1970s, something happened with Bernstein. He experienced a career renaissance in the world of film comedy. Director John Landis grew up next to Bernstein and befriended him through his kids, and as a result, when Landis went on to direct 1978's Animal House, co-written by Harold Ramis and starring the late John Belushi, Landis hired Bernstein to write some very straightforward, heroic music for the film, as Landis felt it would heighten the absurdity of the comedy. And suddenly, Bernstein was the go-to guy for comedies for the next decade He went on to write memorable scores for such comedy hits as The Blues Brothers, Airplane, Meatballs, Trading Places, and Stripes. So by the time we get to 1984's Ghostbusters, Bernstein was a hit comedy film score writer. And this is, of course, how my generation was introduced to Elmer Bernstein. These comedies were all the rage when I was a kid, many of which I wasn't supposed to be watching, by the way. And while some have aged better than others the music is still wonderful. In fact, I find that to be a somewhat common phenomenon. Movie music oftentimes ages better than the films that they were written for. So for me, Ghostbusters is an interesting study in that it's a culmination of years of film scoring technique from Bernstein, smack dab in the middle of a unique turning point in his career as a comedy musician, and it's at the height of MTV's popularity, and it was at a time when movie franchises that we are all still celebrating to this day were being born. All of this is reflected in the music we hear in Ghostbusters. Let's start with the movie itself. And we'll talk about how these emotional elements can be found in the film score in just a second. Ghostbusters is, of course, a comedy with scary elements. The visual effects done by Star Wars veteran Richard Edland are top-of-the-line, state-of-the-art for that time. The scares are real because the effects are real. In fact, it seems that the only thing that the movie takes more seriously than the spooks and specters are the laughs. Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, Sigourney Weaver, Ernie Hudson, Annie Potts, and Rick Moranis really deliver in this department. So, the Elmer Bernstein film score also had to be equal parts lighthearted and scary. It was a fine line to walk. I mentioned earlier that the soundtrack release for Ghostbusters was mostly pop music, with just a few of Bernstein's cuts on the album. Well, fortunately, in 2006, two years after Bernstein passed away, Varese Saraband Records put out a limited edition run, 3,000 copies, actually, of Bernstein's full Ghostbusters score. And in the liner notes of this album release, Bernstein was quoted as saying the following, Quote, I think one of the reasons that the comedy scores work, said Bernstein at the time, is that I do not denigrate the film. I don't try to do anything hokey. I don't try to make the music funny. My theory is that if the comedy is working in the film, let the film do the comedy and let the music get behind the emotion or the action so as to add another element. If I just made the music funny, then it's funny on funny. So what do you need the music for? End quote. The liner notes go on to say, But Ghostbusters provided a unique challenge for the composer. Part of it is comedy, and yet you have to take the ghost business quite seriously, said Bernstein. You have to believe, along with these guys, that the ghosts really do exist. Therefore, the score also had to walk a very fine line. It was probably one of the most difficult jobs I ever had to do. We'll take a close listen to how Bernstein set about tackling this challenge, right after the break. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to the soundtrack show. Ghosts. Hello, Ghostbusters. They're real. You do? They're mean. You have? They're here. We get- Ghostbusters. Hey, anybody see a ghost? They catch the ghost that won't stay dead. Ghostbusters! They're armed. Ah! 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 Oh! Oh! They're dangerous. Try to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. All right, that's bad. Okay, Our right, important safety tip. Thanks, Egon. They're professionals. Oh, I'm the chairman of the largest paranormal removal company in America. Here's another quote from the liner notes of the 2006 Varese Saraband release of the orchestral score to Ghostbusters. Quote, The main theme for the Ghostbusters was particularly difficult. What I did with the theme for the guys was to get a kind of antic theme, said Bernstein. It's kind of cute without being really way out, end quote. Let's take a listen to how Elmer Bernstein approached a main theme for Ghostbusters. A nice jaunty piano line. Listen to that frumpy tuba giving us the bass notes. And the melody. It's spooky, but doesn't take itself too seriously in this setting. Listen to that cool orchestration. It reminds me of spooky wind howling during those woodwind runs. Boy, you know, this really does walk a fine line. This particular piece, by the way, was written for the soundtrack album. It's a concert piece, so it doesn't quite appear in the film this way, but does kind of embody the comedy-slash-spooky elements to the movie that we discussed with an emphasis on the former, the comedy. It's scary the way that Disneyland's Haunted Mansion is scary. In fact, it even shares a few intervals in the melody, right? It's got that kind of playing at being scary, but not really scary. Anyway, let's talk about this piece of music. If you actually look at the melody itself... It's a nice balance between neutral and maybe slightly dark tones. It starts off with these perfect intervals, as many melodies do to establish themselves. <laughs> you knew I was going to do that. But then it goes straight to the tritone. Right here. Ah, the tritone, the devil's tone, the tone of uncertainty. Then, of course, it dances between these major and minor tonalities, literally going between comedy and darkness, when it repeats. Du, du, major, minor. Then, like a good horror score should, it does this chromatic walk down. And then back up to the top. But this only tells half the story. Because we have to talk about the chords themselves before we get to what's actually in the piece, that jaunty piano part. Let's talk about the suggested harmonic outline of this piece. What I mean is, let's talk about the harmonies that are are kind of driving this melody. Because I would argue that it suggests more darkness than we actually get in Ghostbusters. It actually doesn't ever give us that darkness, but it's in the piece. I think part of the flexibility of this theme is that it could be played like this. (laughs) Like, it could just be this really dark kind of gothic piece. It doesn't do that. You know, it would be going from one minor to that flat three minor. To a two minor, to a flat two major, you know, back to one minor. Uh, If that sounds like Greek to you, just know that this means trouble. A minor upon minor type of sound, a diminished sound. It's like classic spook central for really kind of melodramatic horror. But though the melody and harmonies do support that treatment that I just played, that's not what Bernstein does with his treatment at all. What he does, and this is really crucial, is like this. I mean, that is so different. First of all, it has this lilting, swinging, jaunty rhythm to it. It's kind of this bright, upbeat shuffle. But more importantly, the piece features a special mode in music that we call Dorian mode. It sounds like natural minor, but with a raised sixth. So if you have this normal minor sound... Like this. And then you add that kind of Dorian sound, it sounds like this. See how much brighter that is? You know, this kind of thing. And then you add this. It's like a C minor, but with a D minor above it. It's a bit of a neutralizing agent. Certainly used heavily in jazz improvisation on the piano. Um, With a normal natural minor, this piano riff would actually be totally crazy. You wouldn't have this you'd have something like this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So what we have instead is so much more fun. And to me, it kind of plays into this kind of piano based blues based branding that seems to come with the SNL second city players. uh, And from SCTV, you know, that, that Bill Murray, Harold Ramis background and, and from the blues brothers, heck, Even Bill Murray's themes from Stripes is piano-based. Also a Bernstein score. But concerning this Dorian shuffle of a piano part... How does that make you feel? Does it fill you with dread, the way music from other scary movies does? I would argue that probably no, it doesn't. It still has some spooky elements, you know, in the... You know, but they're lighthearted. Here's a film score review by David Stoner from Films on Screen and Video. Quote, The perky main title theme was orchestrated and presented in such a way as to place the proceedings firmly in a humorous position but reminding the listener that we are entering a world of unpleasant and malevolent spirits, end quote. Well, I know what he means about the humorous positioning of Ghostbusters, but what about his mention of malevolent spirits? Well, I think that this is where the theme's flexibility and how it's structured comes into play. Listen to how Bernstein presents the theme the first time we see Dana Barrett's evil gateway of a New York apartment building, gargoyles and all. That's the main theme, but okay, that sounds malevolent. The point? We hear this theme all over Ghostbusters. We hear it played lazily around the firehouse. We hear it played for laughs when Bill Murray is trying to win the affections of Sigourney Weaver, though he comes off more like a game show host than a scientist. And we hear it several times as dark transition music like we just did. All in all... It serves the movie as a somewhat tongue-in-cheek theme that can also double as a spooky warning of frights yet to come. And speaking of frights, we're going to switch subjects here. There is an element of instrumentation in the Ghostbusters film score that is incredibly unique. Besides using a symphony orchestra, Bernstein employs more than his fair use of synths. I mean, for one thing, he's got a whole gaggle of Yamaha DX7 synths, which, by the way, is a tried-and-true 80s workhorse of a synthesizer that was ultimately as ubiquitous a piece of music gear in every music studio in the world as a Shure SM57 was or Yamaha NS10s or that beat-up studio-owned drum kit. You, You musicians know what I'm talking about. But besides all of those Yamaha DX7s that he used on this score, he also features a very unique synth that is worth talking about called the En Martenant. <laughs> Forgive my butchered French here. The what? <laughs> the on Martinant. Yes, it's a very old French synthesizer developed in 1928 by Maurice Martenant, a radio operator during World War I. What it was was a musical adaptation of the frequency sweeps that occurred when radio operators were searching for the right radio frequencies. And it was applied to music to give like a cello-like expression. Martinot was a cellist as well as a radio operator. This unique instrument gives us a glissando-like haunting tone in Ghostbusters, very similar to a theremin, if you know what that is. Uh, if you don't, you should Google it and check it out, because a theremin is done with these two antennae by waving your hands in the air, uh, while the en is played with a ring on your index finger, moving across with a wire while the left hand controls the attack and the timbre. So, there are some great examples of this creepy instrument in Ghostbusters. I mean, it's used in a creepy way in Ghostbusters. It's not, like, inherently creepy. Anyway, the En Martinant is used in Ghostbusters, and besides the piano that's in that main melody that I played, the En Martinant is by far the signature instrument of this whole score. So, let's start by listening again to the Ghostbusters main theme, and notice how the main melody is carried by a combination of the En Martinant, that synth and a muted trumpet. But that's just the tip of the iceberg for this unique synth. Here's a clip from the New York Public Library at the top of the movie. The All-Martinat, please forgive my French again, opens up the entire movie practically. It's easy to state that this score just wouldn't be the same without the All-Martinant. It gives the movie, along with its musical and harmonic language, a bit of a throwback to older film scores of the 1950s that used either the theremin or the Montinant, giving the score just enough of a sci-fi horror camp, a flavor that takes the edge out of the scarier moments such as the eerie librarian ghost that transforms in front of our heroes to a very scary, very horrifying, rotted apparition and screams them out of the library. All of this plays into the balance of tone in Ghostbusters, that balance of comedy and scares. There are other themes in the movie that I'd like to chat about as well, and the one that instantly comes to mind is Dana's theme, a musical theme for Sigourney Weaver's character, Dana Barrett. The first time we hear this theme is when Dana is getting out of a cab in front of her apartment building, and it's played by a cello. This makes sense, as Dana's character is a cellist in the New York Symphony Orchestra. We know she's a very accomplished musician, at the top of her game, because she's seen later in the movie coming out of rehearsal in New York's famed Lincoln Center, home of the Met and the New York Philharmonic. Also, we know she's doing well because she's living in, by New York City standards, a massive apartment, which was really a set built at Burbank Studios. By the way, making the character of Dana Barrett a cellist was actually Sigourney Weaver's suggestion, according to production notes, because she thought it would make the character much more interesting. She was right. So, we can thank Sigourney Weaver directly for the cello-driven introduction that she has when she makes her screen entrance in Ghostbusters. Let's take a listen. There was a concert version of this piece that did appear on the original soundtrack album, the only other Bernstein piece that appeared on this mostly pop record. What's interesting to note about it is that it actually opens with the En Martinant playing her main melody. at the second melody in Dana's theme. This is a second melody that emerges and actually plays an important part later in the film. second theme, we really hear for the first time in the film, in its full glory, when Vankman meets Dana in Lincoln Center as she's exiting rehearsal in order to share the Ghostbusters research and follow up with her. Well, really, to ask her out on a date. We get the secondary Dana theme on the All Martinat, and then as a full blown three-quarter time waltz in Lincoln Center. An interesting character and her melodies are wonderful. You know, Dana's theme has a very 70s feel to it uh, in terms of a more romantic melody, you know, and it kind of rocks back and forth on all these major seventh chords. A very jazzy, kind of adult, contemporary, kind of late 20th century sound. <laughs> In a way, this melody represents normal people. People not involved with spooks and specters. People not involved in the university or the public library. Just working professionals. So it makes sense that this music would live totally outside of the rest of the established musical language of the film. Dana stands apart in this way. That's her appeal. She's not a knucklehead the way the rest of the cast is. She's got it together. So much so that even a charlatan... Harold Ramis' words, by the way, in the commentary. A charlatan like Peter Vankman needs to up his game and start taking things seriously. There are wonderful moments of Dana's theme in the score, but once she's possessed by Zool, the gatekeeper, we hear her theme presented to us in a minor key as she levitates over her bed. There it is, right there at the end. Then, by the time the gatekeeper and Vince Clortho, the keymaster, meet up in Dana's apartment, both Sigourney Weaver as Dana and Rick Moranis as Louis are totally possessed by spirits, and Dana dips Louis and plants a huge kiss on him, the music that is Dana's theme is totally transformed into this exotic, haunting version of its former theme. With only the rhythmic shape of the melody... The texture of portamento strings and maybe some intervals surviving the transformation. A musical representation of the possession. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. Ghostbusters, starring Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Sigourney Weaver, Harold Ramis, Rick Moranis. Coming to save the world this summer. Ghostbusters. We came, we saw, we kicked it. There are other parts of the score that are downright haunting. There's this demonic motif that plays, signaling the coming of Gozer and other frightening haunts, that sounds like this. It's an interesting harmonic language and really shows us a great example of some of Bernstein's skill as a composer. This isn't your average diatonic harmony here that we've kind of featured so far in his soundtrack. This is some out there 20th century writing that, when played chord by chord, maybe isn't as haunting as when you consider how it's orchestrated and how it moves. Here are the first few chords. Almost kind of opens up with this Lydian sound. Moving to another kind of augmented sound. And then landing on this other augmented chord, which kind of gives it a bit of a minor dread feel, like, like this here. But when it's fully orchestrated, the music seems to have this moan and heave of the arrival of terrible things. It's very, very effective. And just a reminder, for contrast... It's the same score, same film score. Amazing the difference in tone, right? Bernstein wasn't kidding. It was his mission to let the comedy be the comedy, but take the ghosts and the evil that they're up against very seriously. In fact, beyond the visual effects, I'd argue that it's the music of Elmer Bernstein that's really doing all of the work for this movie in this department. The score is what's giving weight to the threat. The score is what makes our heroes feel in over their heads. But let's go ahead and get back to the humor for a bit. There are some really fun things that Bernstein does just to enhance the humor of our actors on screen. Two examples of this that I've loved since I was a kid immediately come to mind. The first is based on a moment that I can't imagine wasn't an improvised moment by Bill Murray as he first enters Dana's apartment. I'm referring to that great moment when he, of course, trills those two notes on the high end of the piano... And he says, they hate this. They hate this. I like to torture them. That's right, boys. It's Dr. Venkman. I think that Bernstein picked up on this when he was spotting the movie and incorporated it into some of Venkman's funnier or at least lighter moments. For example, at the beginning of the movie... When Venkman is conducting an experiment using electric shocks on this hapless young student, you hear this right before he gives the final shock. There's a couple wavy lines. Sorry, this isn't your lucky day. I know. Um. There's the piano trill. um, I'm getting a little tired of this. You volunteered, didn't you? We're paying you, aren't we? Yeah, but I didn't know you were going to be giving me electric shocks. We hear it again right when Vankman is about to open Dana's refrigerator in a moment of fall suspense. Better check the fridge. Good call. (laughs) Oh, my God. Look at all the junk food. These kind of moments are wonderful nods to the comedic nature of our characters, but there's one moment that I think has always been really pretty special. Right after Peter, Ray, and Egon are kicked out of the university, they sit on campus drinking, wondering about what they're going to do next in their careers. They've been fired. Now, what's interesting is that, for a moment, Bill Murray decides to sing some of his dialogue, Call it fate, call it karma. And Bernstein not only finds the key, but plays along, as if a song is about to break loose. Personally, I like the university. They gave us money and facilities. We didn't have to produce anything. You've never been out of college. You don't know what it's like out there. I've worked in the private sector. They expect results. For whatever reasons, Ray, call it fate. Call it luck. Call it karma. I believe that everything happens for a reason. I believe that we were destined to get thrown out of this dump. For what purpose? To go into business for ourselves. This ecto-containment system that Spengler and I have in mind is gonna require a load of bread to capitalize. Where are we gonna get the money? I don't know. I don't know. As Murray returns to spoken dialogue, Listen to how Bernstein cleverly keeps the momentum of the scene lifting upwards and upwards, and even sneaks in a a bit of the main Ghostbusters theme into the moment, before hard-cutting forward in time to when they've taken out a bank loan. Let's take a listen to the cue in isolation. ¶¶ just love that. It's a really fun breaking of the fourth wall, so to speak, and really lifts the beginning of this movie in terms of momentum. For a moment, Bill Murray and Elmer Bernstein give us a bit of an I Want song, a key moment in almost every Disney or Broadway musical. There are so many other things to point out about this score, and we haven't even gotten to the songs or Ray Parker Jr. and his smash hit theme tune. We'll cover all of that, and we'll even talk about a huge amount of music that was either cut or replaced by songs with Mixed Feelings by Bernstein. All of this and more on the next episode. Until then, I'm David W. Collins, and this is The Soundtrack Show. Thank you.